If you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. By the way, Seth, we need to sing that song in February so that I'll be reminded that winter is a sign of his manifold witness of his faithfulness to me. I will need that in February. Oh, I can see you guys. Well, this summer we've been looking at the parables recorded in the book of Matthew. Looking at these kingdom principles that Jesus taught, that he was teaching his disciples as he was preparing them to be his disciples. A disciple is one who follows their master. And in the same note, he's calling each of us to be followers of the master that we would be his disciples too, quite literally. So this is our last week now in the parables, which means a couple of things. One, the summer has moved far too quickly. I don't know if your family is anything like mine. We've spent the last two weeks marking the exact date which every pool in town closes, swimming as many times in said pool as we could before moving on to the next one. But it also means we're coming to a climax in our series. As all of these parables... As all these principles come together, and we'll step into that as we look into Matthew 25, but before we do that, let me remind us of some of the early principles that have come before us. First, we're called to be generous sowers. We're called to spread seed generously, and we're called to spread it everywhere. We're called to press on in sowing, even when it's difficult, and even when the fruit's don't seem particularly fruitful. We're called to take heart, even when life is difficult, even when sowing is difficult, to know that the kingdom will be established all over the earth. And friends, in fact, it it still is being established all over the earth. And whatever the price, we're reminded that the kingdom is worth the cost. That the king cares so deeply about us, he cares so deeply about the lost, that he's willing to leave the 99 to chase the lost one. We've been reminded that we're not entitled to this kingdom. And we can't live a life that says we're entitled to it, but rather we live a life that suggests that we have owed a tremendous debt to a king who forgave us through the work of his son. And so our lives then reflect the forgiveness that has been offered to us for a debt we never could have paid. We live as a people who are forgiven. And then as we've moved along, Jesus taught three consecutive parables, having changed his audience from the disciples to the Pharisees. He makes a particular aim at the religious types of the day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the others, to lean into their misunderstandings of the kingdom. And we looked at the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants and the terrible, and the parable, the terrible, the parable of the great banquet. All of these laying out misconceptions of the kingdom. That Jesus has made it very, very, very clear in the scriptures that you cannot enter the kingdom on your own. You cannot enter the kingdom on your own righteousness. Or to put it as clear as we can, you cannot earn your way into heaven. He makes it so abundantly clear that it's not about being good enough. Or about being a good person. Or about having your good outweigh your bad. Now Jesus tells us three stories in front of the religious people who were getting all the standards down, that this wasn't true and can't be true. The only way to get into the kingdom of God 
is to believe in Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're brought into the kingdom. It's not your righteousness, it's not your good works, it's not you doing good things for people. It's believing in Jesus. And he put that before the Pharisees over and over and over again to confront their self-righteousness. And friends, I believe he puts it before us to confront our own self-righteousness. That we would know that it's only in believing in Jesus. That there's nothing I could do that would make God love me anymore. But there's nothing I could do to make him love me any less either. That by believing in him, I inherit the kingdom. So this week, as we open chapter 25, we're going to be looking at the parable of the talents. You might open your pew Bible if you don't bring your own. There's a red one in front of you. It looks like this. We'll be on page 830. Now, while you're turning there, you might notice we're skipping a couple of parables on our way here. Some of them are defined more clearly as parables. Others are not. This first 13 verses in chapter 25 is called the parable of the ten virgins. So let me briefly summarize it for you, and you'll get a sense of why we passed over it. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who are headed to a wedding. The idea here is you have unmarried women. In modern times, you can picture these as bridesmaids, if you'd like. The parable says that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And then he gives you the explanation. The five wise bridesmaids were prepared for the celebration, and the five foolish ones were not. See, wisdom here is in preparation. It's in being ready. So when the unwise ones, those who were not prepared, as a celebration began to kick off, they had to run to the store to pick up supplies. And while they were gone, the wedding started, and they were not allowed in. In fact, the text says it pretty plainly and pretty boldly verse 12 it says truly i say to you i did not know you the point of that parable is readiness that you believe that you are prepared to meet jesus christ it's often been said that as a pastor you must be ready to preach pray and die at a moment's notice i would tell you as a church you may not need to have to preach or pray But you better be ready to die at a moment's notice. Because we are not promised tomorrow. We have no idea what's coming before us. Friends, I urge you to grab on to salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. And by believing that his death pays the complete price for your sins. That is our hope of salvation. And so as Jesus has put this before us yet again, the parable that he's bringing us into now, and he that he's setting us up for. Now the issue is going to not be readiness, but faithfulness. So we want to lean into this one. Will we be faithful to what he's been given to us? So Matthew 25, verse 14 starts this way. For it, it referring to the kingdom, for it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Entrusted being the key word here underline it circle it we're going to camp on this word later and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two to another one to each equaling his ability and then he went away 
Now, you may remember the idea of a talent is a sum of gold that's roughly 60 to 80 pounds. We'll call it a 70-pound block of gold. Now, just to save you from Googling this, the first servant who was entrusted with five talents was given about 350 pounds of gold. Current price is about $1,350 per ounce or $21,000 per pound today. That would roughly be $7.5 million given to this guy in today's money. This is no small sum. To the second servant who received two talents, that roughly 140 pounds of gold or $3 million in today's money. And finally, the last servant was given one talent or 70 pounds of gold or around $1.5 million in today's money. All of them substantial amounts of money, none of them shortchanged. So anytime you've ever run this, read this, and thought that the third guy is, is kind of getting off, remember that he was given about a million and a half. That's a pretty substantial inheritance. It's a pretty substantial investment that the master is making, and that's supposed to be intentional. The idea even of a talent would be that it'd be like 27 years of wages. So if you get even over a full talent, you get into two talents, you're talking about all the money you'd ever make in your entire life. This is the kind of money that we're talking about here. They're considerable amounts, and we have to notice that the amounts were entrusted to each servant, not randomly, not out of preference, but according to ability. And the story continues. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. i got to point out to you that the at once part here is strongly emphasized in the text. That he immediately took what he was entrusted with. That he took the five and he went and he made five more. Verse 17, and so also who had the two talents made two more. But, in verse 18, here's our contrast. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. So now Jesus is going to reconcile this for us. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. For you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 22, And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And here's our contrast. And he who'd received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, 
and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So to put all of this in perspective for you, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives just outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. I sat there, if you want a picture of it, if you sit on top of the Mount of Olives, you could probably nine iron into the city of Jerusalem. Just to give you some perspective, Jesus sits on this very mountain weeping over the city of Jerusalem in a different story, but he's really close and he's three days before he's to be crucified when he gives this set of parables to an audience, mostly of his disciples, but we can gather that there's probably another audience there as well. So what does this parable say? What does it have to do with our lives? Well, I want to point out a couple of major truths that will come out, and I want us to lean into them in our remaining time. First, just as the master entrusted his servants, and you saw it in the parable, to the first he gave 350 pounds of gold, to the second 140 pounds of gold, so Jesus has entrusted us as his servants. You and me. He's entrusted us with something far more valuable than gold. You would read that in the book of Acts where a beggar asked John and Peter, do you have any money? They say, I can give you something far more than money. And he offers them the gospel. Friends, we have to consider what does it mean that we've been entrusted with something. You lean into the New Testament, you find there are two uses. I will give you both of them. First, you'd find that the Bible uses this word entrusting, that we would entrust ourselves to God. 1 Peter 4.19 is a good example of this. Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter writes, If you are suffering, entrust yourself to the Lord. Place yourself in his hands. Rest in the reality that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he knows far more than you do, that he sees the greater picture, and that he's going to work it out. Entrust yourself to the creator. And there's a second use. The one that refers to that which God the Father entrusted to us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All of this, what Paul is writing here is pointing to salvation. The very reality that in Jesus Christ, and remember in Ephesians 1 it says, you are in Christ when you hear the word of truth and you have believed. All of this, the salvation, this reality that in Christ, having believed the word of truth, that you are formed into a new creation, a brand new being, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and 
gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He explains it, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We cannot miss the ands here. For if you have an and, it's not an either or. It's this and that. They both carry the important weight of truth that Christ is putting before us. In verse 19, there are two parts to the work of Christ on earth. And we can't miss this, friends. We can't miss it. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was opening up a path of salvation to those who would believe. And he entrusted us with a message. That means he gave it to you and me. He entrusted it to us. He handed it over to us that we would be faithful with it. Much like the master who gave one five talents and one two talents and one one talent, we have been entrusted with the gospel. That's the second major part of Jesus' work on the earth. If you ever leaned into it, that's why he was here for three years and not like a week. Jesus could have appeared and then died later that week. No, he spent three years discipling men and giving them the message and trusting it to them. So that over that three-year period, they could then take it and entrust it to others who would entrust it to others who would entrust it to others. And we know the disciples got this. Let's look at Paul writing to the Galatians in Galatians 2. This is what Paul writes. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Do you see how the gospel given to Paul was also entrusted to him for somebody? It wasn't just for Paul's sake. It wasn't just so that Paul could be saved. Glory, hallelujah. Jesus could have taken him home then if it was just for Paul. No, it was entrusted to him for someone in such a way that they saw it. They could see it in Paul that the gospel had been entrusted to him for the the uncircumcised, for the Gentiles, for the unbelievers, those unaccustomed to the ways of God, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel. That they, again, could look at Peter and know that the gospel hadn't just been given to Peter for Peter's sake, That Peter would be on display and go, oh, how nice is it that he looks such a great, nice, moral character? No. God put the gospel in Peter so that Peter would be saved and then he'd use Peter as an instrument for salvation. The gospel had been entrusted to Peter for someone. Now, I can give you lots of other examples of this in the scripture. The point being this. When the gospel was given to you, was it given to you so that it would end with you? Oh, church, please yell no. Was it, given to, was it entrusted to you? 
And if it's entrusted to you, what do you ask to do with it? Yes, you guys are awesome at this now. It's entrusted to you as an investment. That you would take the very words of God, the very grace that has been shown to you. Friends, the very nature of the gospel is that not a single one of us is good enough. There isn't one here that is. That's why we have a gospel message. Because we can look at anybody of any race, of any ethnicity, of any socioeconomic boundary, of any political sphere, of any job situation. We could step into it and say, friends, none of us are worth it. And God did something so incredible in forgiving me. I want you to know you could be forgiven too. That's living life as a forgiven one. Knowing that the thing, the very thing that should mark believers is our forgiveness. Not one of us is good enough. The gospel was given to you to save you. And the gospel was given to you It was entrusted to you. Which begs the question, will you bury it? Or will you invest it? See, Peter knew it was given to him. And he died taking it to the Gentiles. Peter knew it was given to him. And he died taking it to the Jews. So when the gospel is entrusted to you, who will you take it to? Quite literally. Who? One of the very reasons why on September 11th we're having an invite your one Sunday is because we're wanting to consistently put it before us that we should be looking through our lives, praying through who are people in our lives who are trying to earn the kingdom of God on their own merit? that need to be saved from their own self-righteousness? Not to a message of moral superiority, but to a message of grace. Who are the people in my lives who are running in circles trying to prove their value that don't understand that their value can only be found in Jesus Christ? The last two weeks have been, the Olympics have been on. I am an Olympic crazy person. We have watched more TV in the last two weeks than probably ever. And it's fun watching these athletes compete and try their best over and over and over again. We've watched events my kids didn't even know existed. Anna Kate said the other day, Dad, do you think I could win a gold medal in jumping up and down? Sure! Jumping up and down would be a great Olympic event. There's all kinds of them out there, but I'm sure you saw the story of the divers who when asked questions were very clear about the fact it doesn't matter what position we, f- we win. That our identity is in Jesus Christ. Just this morning I was reading an article about all the people who come away from Olympic medals into full-on depression because they've reached the pinnacle of what they've hoped for, what they've worked for. They come home and they've got nothing left. If you want something for your prayer list for the next couple weeks, pray for all these Olympians who just reached the pinnacle and are now realizing its emptiness. That what are they going to do? Look four more years and try to win another one? No. Another one isn't going to satisfy you just like this one wouldn't. 
pray for these Olympians, but more than that, pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, our cousins. I guess the Lord doesn't want me to say your neighbors. I hiccuped. Our neighbors. The gospel's been entrusted to us. See, as we walk through the gospel of Matthew, you would see this throughout the book from his earliest parables telling you to sowing generously to the very end in the Great Commission where he calls you to sow generously and making disciples. Just lost my place. Didn't happen with paper. Missed it. Friends, we teach the Bible here, and we want you to notice. And frankly, we want you to be comforted by the reality that when you look at the text, each servant was not given the same, but rather they were given according to their ability. Now, I tell you, I want you to be comforted by this because here's the comforting thought. What this should do for you is this should nullify comparison. This should absolutely obliterate comparison. Because God is not calling you to be me. He's not calling you to be Billy Graham. He's not calling you to be Nick Hall or any other person you can imagine or dream of. He's not calling you to be the person who sits in front of you, three persons down at church, that you think their life is perfect and they've got it all together. Which, by the way, they don't. He's calling you to be you. He's calling you to be an obedient you. He's calling you to be a faithful you. See, when God passed out talents, he considers our abilities. He's not asking you to be somebody you're not. He created you. In Psalm 139, it says he knit you together in your mother's womb. We believe that. You were gifted, you were talented because he gifted you and he talented you. He has given you what you need. Be an obedient and a faithful you. You're not responsible to be like anyone else. You're responsible to be you. You see, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is not fulfilled in people coming. No, it's fulfilled in people going. Its very fulfillment would be us sowing seeds. Not in people responding, but in us going. And Revelation testifies, as we saw last week, that God will be faithful That every nation, every tribe, every people group, and every language will be represented. Friends, don't bury what God has entrusted to you. Be you. Be a faithful you. And secondly, we need to look at and we need to consider that just as the Master returned to hold His servants accountable, so Jesus will return and hold us accountable. The first and the second servants acted immediately and they obeyed. And I'm sure when the master returned, both servants would have been excited about his return. Excited to run up to show him what they'd done with what they were given. In fact, the text says they came forward. They came looking for him. And did you notice the master's words? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, these are the words that we attribute to everyone who goes into eternity, aren't they? 
That's what we all talk about. And do note here, it's, these words are spoken to those that were faithful, not to those who were righteous. Not to those who had all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted. Not to those who did all the right things. No, it's attributed to those who were faithful to what they have been given. You've been faithful. Well done. Welcome home. On Wednesday night, I drove to Eventide to visit some friends who had lost a dad, who had lost a husband, who had lost a grandfather. And as I drove to Eventide, there's a beautiful sunset. And all I could imagine was David Gross standing in eternity, hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. My heart just leapt for him. I was so excited for him. I was so jealous of him. Friends, we're called to a life of faithfulness. The Master commends faithfulness with what we've been entrusted with. So on this side of the great white light, we have to ask, we have to consider what is faithfulness, what does it look like, and what are we doing with what we've been entrusted? Because this third servant, the one that frankly we all wish wasn't in the text, this third servant, the one who received the one talent, instead of moving in obedience, absolutely disregards the master and chooses his own path. He takes what has been entrusted to him and he digs a hole and he buries it. Now there are all kinds of reasons that could be given. And in fact, he even tries several of them in his explanation. But what do you think this guy thought about his master that made him so easy to disobey him? What do you think he thought about these commands that God had given him that it was so easy to absolutely disregard them? And what was he think about the value of what was given to him if his only thought was to take it and to bury it? Friends, the master was gone for a long time. He had lots of opportunities. And interestingly enough, he too comes forward. He too proudly comes to the master expecting that his answer will be sufficient. He brings a proud and a strong answer. He's got his explanation. And the master doesn't just call him lazy. The master calls him wicked. And then casts him into the outer darkness. Friends, it's not because he didn't produce. It's not because he didn't do all the rules right. It's because he thought so little of the master. And he thought so little of the master's directions. Which could only testify that he didn't believe the master. That he didn't trust the master. Friends, as we've walked through these parables that Jesus taught, we have looked at what the kingdom is and what it isn't. That the only way to attain the kingdom, the only way to eternal life is through believing in Jesus Christ. 
And the third servant clearly didn't. Don't be like the third servant. Don't take what you've been given and bury it. Don't give excuses for your disobedience. Don't miss the invitation to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And don't miss the invitation to participate in the salvation that is being given out all the time. The invitation to participate in His great work of bringing salvation to the world. The great opportunity that gives each of us to take a front row seat and watch Him work. Friends, don't miss the invitation. Because the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, the parable of the great banquet make it plain that we cannot earn our way in. We cannot be good enough. The parable of the virgins makes it clear you have to be ready. And the parable of the talents tells us we have to be faithful. That it's our faith, our belief in the King that calls us to obedience. Not our obedience that saves us. It's our faith. But it's our faith that drives us to obedience. James 2 testifies to that. Friends, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, know this. You've been entrusted with the Gospel. May I call you not to bury it, but to take what you've been given and invest it by sowing broadly. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the great truth in this book, Your Word, is that none of us is good enough. None of our righteous deeds are good enough. None of our accounting for our lives will be good enough. None of the explanations we can give will be good enough. Father, to those who seek self-righteousness, those are troubling words. But to those who have to fall on grace, it's the hope of salvation. To know that in believing in Jesus Christ, that we are offered salvation, that we are offered eternal life, that when we believe in Him, we are called children of God. Father, to all of us who have believed, we've also been entrusted. Father, may You call each of us not to be like somebody else, but to be faithful. To be faithful in whatever path You've given us. Whatever walk we are on. Whatever age we are at. Father, call us to be increasingly more and more faithful to who You are and to what You've entrusted to us. For we long to hear the words, well done. Good and faithful servant. May it be said of us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.